G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Because we're turning our attention back today to the reliability of the Bible. And after all, the printing press didn't appear until 1450. And up until then, copies of the Bible were reproduced by hand. And for that reason, a lot of people, including lots of Christians, have had nagging doubts about the accuracy of our modern translations of the Bible. Well, sometimes those doubts keep people from coming to faith in Christ. And sometimes they keep us from becoming all that we might be if we had real confidence in God's Word. Well, our special guest today is Jonathan Clark. He has a new book out that fills in the gaps in how we understand the accuracy and credibility of the Scriptures. He says people don't always trust what the Bible says or how modern translations can be an accurate reflection of what Jesus really said. Our special guest, Jonathan Clark, and his book is called Echoes of Jesus. Does the New Testament reflect what he said? Why don't you take the opportunity very shortly when we open talkback lines to join in our conversation. But Jonathan, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Let's just start with uh, talking about people's attitudes to the Bible because there's a sense, isn't there, that your book is written for people who have these sorts of questions. Yes, very people much People so. who are skeptics. But not only people who are skeptics, people who are believers and they've taken the Bible to yes. be an accurate account of what Jesus said uh, and they want to actually deepen that understanding. This is this is your whole focus. Yeah, yes, because so many people are still curious about Jesus Christ. They may not be particularly warm and fuzzy to what they perceive as the church, but Jesus still has a fascination for so many people. And I find that most people have a curiosity rather than an animosity towards Jesus. And that curiosity is just natural. It's, it's just like if you want to understand anything, it all starts with curiosity. Now, you take things particularly deep, and I love that. Uh, not everybody starts at deep. Let's start shallow and maybe we'll move into the deep end of the pool as we go into our conversation. But uh, let's come back to where I mentioned, you know, the printing press didn't come along until 1450. And up until then, copies of the Bible were reproduced by hand. And so the image that we all might have in our mind could be monks sitting up late in a monastery by candlelight uh, copying scrolls, uh, copying manuscripts, and there's the risk that there might be some sort of mistakes that can be made in the dim of a candlelight room. What are your thoughts here about the process that's happened in being able to re reproduce our Bible in those early years? Sure. There's several things that um, a lot of people misunderstand, I guess, is that they think that the copying might have been like co copying a school assignment. People who were doing the copying had a very vested interest in these scriptures. They were living and dying because of the words in these scriptures. 
It wasn't like it was a, a text that was irrelevant to them. So they had this motivation, typically, to do a really good job. If you put yourself in the shoes of a Christian, if you believe that Jesus really is God who took on human flesh, then wouldn't naturally you be careful when you're writing down the or copying down the words that Jesus had been recorded as saying in an earlier manuscript? So I think that always needs to be kept front and centre. Mm. What about things like, you know, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, these sorts of discoveries, uh, they clearly are very valuable for being able to compare what we have as a modern translation of the Bible with what is an ancient translation of the Bible. How important is it that those sorts of discoveries, almost like God had some things in place that he had hidden away for such a time as this? They're very important because otherwise all we have is opinions and suppositions. So as soon as we can find ancient texts, we can suddenly move away from opinions based on feelings to opinions based on facts. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were great for the Old Testament. They give us this incredible validity in their copying accuracy from about 200, 100 BC, all the way through to, for instance, one of the big handwritten copies of the Old Testament is called Leningrad B19A, which dates to about 1008 AD. So as far as the Old Testament is concerned, we could suddenly compare a handwritten copy written in 1008 AD with handwritten copies of the book of Isaiah in its entirety written about 150 BC. And that was a great thing for the Christian community and, of course, the Jewish community to see how faithful that was. When we talk about those early copies... How old are the oldest ones? Because sometimes there's an element of doubt that comes in that, uh, well, what we really wanted to see was the note that Jesus wrote. But we know that Jesus didn't write. His disciples, those who were following him, wrote down his words. He didn't actually write anything that we're aware of. So uh, so how when we talk about these things, the age of these documents and uh, the timing that they were actually written, what's the, what's the oldest available to us? Sure. This is actually mind-blowing for everybody, I find. It doesn't matter whether I'm talking to someone in Moscow or someone in the Solomon Islands. People can't believe how old our oldest copies are of the New Testament. So our oldest complete copy of the New Testament in the original Greek language that was handwritten, therefore, is about 350 AD. So we're now 2020 AD. So this is a 1,700-year-old codex, if you like a book. That's a complete copy of the New Testament going all that way back. And it's, it's, uh, it's called Codex Sinaiticus. But that's the oldest complete copy. We can go back further then because we have lots of partial copies that even go before that. Well, that's interesting too because I guess in the history, uh, the what we call the canon of the scripture was only really determined around early 4th century. And so when you talk about the oldest complete copy coming from halfway through the 4th century, it's actually pretty close to when the full Bible might have been actually set down in canon. Oh, there's, there's a lot of good, good thoughts coming through there. Uh, first thing I'd like for our listeners to understand is, is what is it that we're talking about when we mean a canon or a rule. I think the biggest misunderstanding I find 
amongst Christians and non-Christians is that a group of churches got together, they had a bit of a discussion, and they came up with an authoritative list of books that represent the teachings of Jesus and his first disciples. That's actually not the case. They didn't come up with an authoritative list of books. They came up with a list of authoritative books. In other words, they didn't make up what is going to be authoritative. They concluded together what was already authoritative. If you like, they made it an official statement after being able to get together after a few centuries of persecution when it wasn't so easy always, the persecution came and go in waves, to be able to make such a discussion happen. So when we've got, say, the whole of the Bible that we might think today, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, what we call a canon of Scripture, that's, as you say, and really importantly, these are the authoritative books. These were the ones highly in circulation, being used by the growing churches, and they were already authoritative because the reputation of those books was so, so strong. So before you have the full uh, appreciation of having the whole Bible all together all at once. As you say, there are now smaller writings and even some surviving pieces of writings that go back even further. Yes, yes. So it seems that uh, some communities had more access to or had access to more books and other communities had access only to a few books. And you can appreciate that because, contrary to what some people believe, there was no central Christian organising committee that had hegemony or rule over all Christians throughout the empire in the first 300 years. So it was a little bit uh, ad hoc, if you like. It depended on where the apostles went, where the Christian teachings could go, where it met good reception as to who had what writings. And so, for instance, that's reflected in some some degree by the popularity, maybe it's too strong a word, by which Gospels in particular do we have the most copies of? And this is what we were alluding to before that. Before these big, complete copies that have started to appear of the New Testament in the 300s and 400s, we had these partial copies. So we have 75 partial copies of the New Testament going back from before 400 AD. And then we have more than 20 copies that go back to just the Gospels alone that go back before 300 AD. And then we even have three partial copies. These are really small bits now. Really, bits is the right word. that go back before 200 AD. And I just think that's amazing to have some of the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John they go all the way back to before 200 AD. That's just, in, in the original Greek language, it still blows me away. You know, just at the risk of taking us down another rabbit hole, um, at the same time that these uh, manuscripts were being uh, copied and distributed, uh, there were also some false teachings that were also being distributed around the place and they had various names and uh, you know sometimes we would uh, would refer to them as heretics or those heretical writings those things that sometimes are very false and sometimes only uh, you know just just missing the mark false but uh, that comes down to the authoritativeness of 
these early manuscripts and how they got chosen. So at the risk of taking us off on a tangent here, that there was those sorts of things too that some people might have doubts. Well, maybe some of the, some might be thinking maybe some of those heretics weren't heretics after all. Maybe they had the truth. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. Once again, I guess what's illuminating is what are the facts on the ground. And so we know that our copies of the New Testament books that we have, that they go right back to the writings, we don't have the original writings, of the disciples and the apostles. So when churches were working out, how do we know this is what Jesus said, they first wanted to know, is this written by one of the twelve, or is it written by one of the followers of one of the twelve? For instance, like Luke. Luke, the doctor, wasn't one of the twelve, but he was a follower of one of the twelve. And Mark... Mark wasn't a disciple, even though many people seem to think that. Rather, he was a, a well, he was an apostle. He was a disciple of Peter. And so we, the, the first Christians knew what really cut it was something that was written by the first 12 or one of their followers. These other books, like the Gospel of Thomas that people might talk about, although they have the names of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, no one believes that Thomas wrote those. No one believes that Peter wrote those. The Gospel of Mary, no one believes Mary wrote those. And what's more, they didn't come on the scene to much later. They might have been thoughts that people had, but the documents came much later. And I'm going to invite listeners to join in our conversation today uh, because you might have your own thoughts. You might have a nagging doubt that's always something that's been in the back of your mind and you'd like to put that to our special guest today. Um, no question off limits, uh, no holds barred, just to just to put Jonathan under a little bit of pressure. Hey, um, when we think of the Bible... And we're looking at our modern translations and people say, oh, there's the KJV and the NIV and the NASB. There's all of these different uh, versions of translations of the Bible. Uh, Just to to quickly, because just in case that listener is saying, well, um, what you're saying is maybe there's some uh, inaccuracies in here. How do we think of these various modern translations of the Bible? Should we be confident in those, that they are accurate according to those early manuscripts? Yeah, I think uh, we first need to broadly describe the situation in English where we have so many varieties of of the New Testament and the Old Testament, is to put them into two categories. There are those Bibles that clearly are not trying to be word for word. They call them than paraphrases. You might think of the Amplified Bible. The word amplified is already a really big hint that every word, every paragraph, every sentence has been amplified. Whereas then we have the other category of of Bible translations into English, which are more trying to convey either in a dynamic or a word-for-word equivalent fashion the actual text itself. Now, my feeling is that whether you read a New King James Version or whether you read the New American Standard Bible from 2020, the, the best version is the version that you are actually going to read. Jonathan, let me ask you about, you know, the note-taking skills of the disciples because if Jesus didn't write the books of the New Testament uh, and how people might appreciate that these 
sermons that he preached, the speeches that he made, how they were actually brought into print form. How do you describe uh, Jesus and his disciples and their handwritten notes? First off is I would say you, you've hit the nail on the head when you talked about handwritten notes. Just like at university, especially 20 or 30 years ago, you went to a lecture and you took handwritten notes as your lecturer spoke. And that's the only record you had of that lecture back then. There was no handouts afterwards. It was all dependent on your ability to take notes. This culture existed in the time of Jesus in the areas where Jesus were. That was a normal thing to do is that you had a teacher and whether it was a religious or a philosophical teacher, people would take notes while they listened. Uh, Some of them had Uh, especially in the Greek world, they had a true shorthand where you weren't trying to write down the actual words, but you're using symbols. For those of you who might have a grandmother that knew shorthand, go and ask her or grandfather. It's a distant memory these days, isn't (laughs) it? The old shorthand. Yes. And uh, in the Jewish community, they had a shorthand that was probably a diff, well, was a bit different. They tended to write words rather than symbols for words or phonetics. In your book, you say they actually used beeswax on a tablet and a stylus that was used to make those notes quickly because sometimes we think, oh, well, we've got a ballpoint pen. If they were fiddling around with a quill with uh, dipping it in ink, how would that have gone? But uh, a beeswax tablet, they they actually had some pretty good technologies. Yeah, they did. And and these weren't brand new at that time. They'd been around and were widely distributed and they were cheap. So certainly when they had more leisure, they would sit down. If they were writing down, a, a, if you like, a formal document, to record exactly what Jesus said to distribute. That would definitely be done with ink and papyrus. But when they were on the run, it was much more likely they were using their their wax tablets, etc. In fact, you say that literacy levels in the first century were actually very high. Uh, Do you think that might be because of, uh, you know, Roman occupation and uh, there were things that were you know, progressing uh, Greeks were the ones who were the philosophers, uh, this sort of literacy levels. What are your thoughts on literacy? Yeah, yeah, certainly they were higher than what people normally believe. And certainly it was more widespread. So you had poor people as well as rich people who were able to read and write. And my book gives a lot of evidence for that wideness, if you like, through society of people being able to read and write, rich and poor, young and old. Uh, reading and writing and the Bible. Uh, there would have been, I guess, lots of other things to read. If people were quite literate, they would have been reading lots of things. So the things that were being distributed around first century and beyond, uh, would they have been attractive for people to say, well, here's something else that's been written. Um, we better read it. Oh, very much so. Well, for instance, I know there were cookbooks. There were books on fishing. There were books on horse breeding. Obviously, there were lots of um, notes and graffiti about your favourite politician or your favourite gladiator. But so there was a widespread um, bunch of genres. But it should never be underestimated how people have always been interested in history. And no doubt interested in gossip and politics. And (laughs) no doubt there was some room for that as well. Hey, taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. John is in Mount Isa in Queensland. Hey, John, welcome along. Hi, mate. Um, The first three words in the Bible says, In the beginning. 
Now, Genesis talks about uh, domestic animals, yet we know that uh, the dinosaurs reigned the Earth 160 million years ago. Uh, why, why don't the religion talk more about the pre-Cambrian period? Uh, you're taking us into an area where this is not going to be our special guest today's expertise. This is not a conversation about creation, and it's not a conversation about uh, Genesis in the sense of uh, when you start to talk about uh, pre-Cambrian periods and various things like that. So I'm going to say let's not... Uh, well, unless you've got a, a thought or two to offer here, this is not your area of expertise. Am I assuming that, Jonathan? Uh, I could offer a, a brief thought that, first off, um, having been a scientist myself, that not all scientists would believe that dinosaurs were around so long ago. And secondly, many people would say that when you read the book of Job, especially chapter 38, there are descriptions of animals there that very much bear the resemblance of dinosaurs. But I think, Neil, you're spot on. This is not the time for that now. Okay, we're not going to be distracted, but, John, I appreciate your call, and you might like to look up those uh, texts in the book of Job, and I think around about Job 38, uh, just from memory, but the dis- you know the description of a behemoth and a leviathan uh, that sometimes in the notes of your Bible, someone will say it's like an elephant or a rhinoceros. However, a... A behemoth or a leviathan very much fits closely, the descriptions that we have for a dinosaur. And so you might like to check those out. And just to, you know, to talk about the thousands or the millions of years, if those dinosaurs were walking with mankind and they are described in the Bible, then they were here within the last 6,000 years. So that might be a way that you can make sense of where the Christians talk about those things by way of a creation account. John, thank you so much for your call. Uh, We're taking calls around the issues to do with Bibles, Bible translation, the accuracy of what Jesus said. So you might like to join in our conversation. What are the nagging doubts that you have? I mean, monks who are copying... Uh, translations of the Bible, uh, making mistakes and such things. You might have your own thoughts around those. 1-800-316-316 and our guest is very well able to talk about those sorts of things. Uh, Let's talk about uh, sceptics, about the disciples' ability to write down what Jesus said at the time. Um, Is there other ways that Jesus' teachings could have been preserved? Because was it just the disciples writing things down? Is there a conspiracy around that? Or were others writing about Jesus at the same time? Oh, well, certainly some people in the crowds may have sometimes written down something. I think most of the time, though, we need to be aware that Jesus was first and foremost a teacher. He gathered 12 men And he had a mission, (laughs) so to speak, in more than one way. And that was to train these 12 men to carry on his mission, his message afterwards. And so being the teacher that he was, 40 times in the Gospels, in the New Testament, he's talked about as a teacher. That was what he was focusing on, these 12 men. So in some sense, when we talk about ourselves as Christians, Christ followers, we're Christ followers because he did such a great job of training 12 people to be his close pupils and message bearers to the following generations. And should we assume, Jonathan, that when we're reading about Jesus' sermons in the Bible, that those weren't sermons that were one-off sermons, that those might have been sermons that Jesus repeated 
around the countryside as he was being followed around by the disciples, uh, he would have preached those more than once, no doubt. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, uh, and, and the beauty of that fact that every teacher will repeat their message more than once is that that will also explain sometimes while there's slight variations we're in the parables so sometimes when we read two parables we think oh i can tell the spine of these parables the backbone of them is the same but there's some pretty big differences the chances are there are differences there because jesus told two similar parables but he didn't have to use the exact same number of coins to get the same message across. And only about a you know, minute away from news, very quickly, um, could there have been a lot of memorization of the things that Jesus said? And that maybe needs a longer response, but yes? Yes, definitely. I'd love to talk about that after the news, about memorization. Uh, just before the news, Jonathan, we were talking about memorization and whether their powers of memorization maybe were better than ours today. Uh, what are your thoughts about memorizing things Jesus said in the first century? Sure. Providing we, we all remember that they had a great capability and a culture of taking notes when they had a lecture, that doesn't mean that memorization didn't form a big part. What I find fascinating is that, especially in the last 30 years, the idea of people memorising text seems so foreign that people think that it's not possible. I was um, noting some friends of mine who are from Iran that the, the wife has memorised the entire Quran. Now, she's a woman a bit younger than myself. So then I went looking a bit further. I thought, wow, I'm actually talking to someone who's memorized the entire Muslim scriptures called the Quran. And sure enough, there's lots of kids, kids, 10 and 11 year olds, who have memorized the entire Quran in Arabic. Now that's about 77,430 words. Now, if a 10 and an 11 year olds can have accomplished memorizing the entire Quran, when you think about the Gospels, they only contain about 83,400 words. Why is it bizarre? Why is it regarded as impossible for the idea that there may have been, if someone wanted to, the ability for people to memorize the whole New Testament, given that it's not much bigger than the Quran, and we're talking about adults? Uh, there's all sorts of good things can come out of that thought and we're taking calls you can help direct where our conversation goes let's take another call and sam has been waiting patiently in melbourne hey sam welcome yeah good afternoon thank you thank you um look one of the thoughts has been nagging in the back of my mind that the development of writing skills and language skills and to write all this down, we're going back a few thousand years, you know, in humankind. I mean, uh, I have question marks at times, you know, and, uh, and to memorize and remember all this thing that we read in, in Scripture. So I thought, I've been driving and I've been listening, and I thought, gee, I must ask this question. It's been on the back of my mind. I've been asking a few uh, ministers of religion, and no one's been really been able to answer me properly. Well, perhaps you can, Jonathan. 
Yeah, I, I'd love to. I'd, I'd, it'd even be better if we could sit over and a couple. Where can of... I get this information, further information? Well, certainly in my book, Echoes of Jesus, which is available through Vision Christian Radio. It is written for yep. both Christians and non-Christians. It doesn't assume someone loves Jesus, but it is very content-rich and well-resourced. But just to briefly recap and to uh, re- respond to your, your, your thoughts, people were writing voluminously back before Jesus. So there was a guy called Aulus Gelius, in 48 BC was commenting about a library in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Now, this library, according to Aulus Gelius, had over 700,000 scrolls, which we believe represented about 100,000 actual books. In other words, sometimes a book took more than one scroll. So that gives you an idea that writing has been present for a long time. And of course, we know of Um, huge caches, if you like, or treasure troves of clay tablets with writing on them that go back to 1500 BC. So certainly writing has been well and truly a a normal part of the human endeavour going back so, so far. So thank you for your question. Uh, Sam, just while we've got you, I mean, this is, you know, you're dealing with your own uh, doubts and uh, those sorts of thoughts. Uh, Is this all accurate? Um, if you could get a hold of a good resource, would you read it? Uh, would you take that little extra time to actually uh, ask those sorts of questions? Uh, uh, would you be that sort of person? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'd be interested in all of that because, I mean, uh, Moses was uh, a long time before Jesus walked the earth. So just wondering, you know, the Israelites and all that, uh, the language skills and the written skills were going back quite a few thousand years. Uh, so that's been on the back of my mind. you know what I mean? Yeah, and no, I can help you out there. What's fascinating, Sam, is that languages in general tend to simplify. So our English language is much simpler than it was 400 years ago. Um, and so the idea that some people have, I'm not saying yourself, Sam, that some people have that languages from the time of Moses might have been a bit simple or limited in their ability to convey thoughts, those ideas aren't actually um, mirrored in the evidence we have, that the languages were super sophisticated. I'm, I'm taking a dabble into the Russian language, which structurally is a lot more complicated than English. And I know Finnish is structurally more complicated than Russian. But what I found scary was that I read a note that Russian that was a thousand years, uh, Russian language a thousand years ago was even more complicated than it is now. So that just gives you an idea that languages haven't been going from really simple and basic and inadequate to complex. Rather, if anything, they've been going from complex to simple. Thank you so much, Sam. Sam, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Uh, Let's take another call. Katie is on the line with us. Hey, Katie. Hi, Neil. Katie, what are your thoughts? Um, Yeah, so I just... Sorry, I came in halfway through the conversation because I was working late last night. Um, But I just was thinking about what Jesus said about the book of Enoch, like he met, he mentioned Enoch and 
I, um, so I've been interested in things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. I had a book on that, so I can't remember who the writer is. But I also have been looking up, I heard there's three different copies of the Book of Enoch. Um, but I had one that was sent to my inbox uh, by, you know, someone from Israel um, that's supposed to be like the Jewish copy of the Book of Enoch. And I just found that really fascinating. Uh, now, um, so let's yeah. uh, let's talk about this because I'm not sure Jesus mentions the Book of Enoch, but it might be he, mentioned in New Testament. Might be one of the New he Testament. He didn't mention writers. the Book of Enoch, but he not. Um, I think he did mention Enoch. He actually, I don't think he mentioned the Book of Enoch, but he mentioned. Enoch. Does that make sense? Well, uh, there was a book of Enoch, though, and uh, there's some other books, too, the book of Yasher, and uh, there's some others that people tend to want to get a hold of. And while we might not think of them as being authoritative because they don't become part of the canon of our scriptures, doesn't mean that they're not useful, but they're not the ones we would say would be inspired. Uh, What are your thoughts here, Jonathan, for Katie? Yeah, thank you, Katie. Excellent question. And they do make fascinating reading. Um, I guess there's a couple of things uh, that immediately come to mind is what we were saying before that what we have in the New Testament, which is our main topic of interest today, is books that people, Christians, recognise right from the get-go as being written by either the Twelve Apostles or the followers of the Twelve Apostles. And that was their criterion for making sure they had a good record of what Jesus said and did. Um, The benefit of the books we've got is that, for instance, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are quite, quite narrative. They actually tell a whole complete story. And that enables us to do some fact-checking. So, for instance, in the um, book of Acts, there are 84 different facts that we can check up to see if the author of Acts actually knew what he was talking about at the time. And these facts we can check up based on archaeology and other history. So when we wonder, can we rely on the book of Acts? There's so many different ways to answer that. But one way is because it tells a lot of background knowledge and it carries through a big story. Whereas if you contrast that with, say, the Gospel of Thomas, there all you've got is some sayings, bunches of isolated sayings, none of which probably were written down in that form of a Gospel of Thomas until about 150 AD. And it's hard for anyone to know, well, how good was this writer at recording the truth when we got no way of checking. All we've got are these sayings, a compilation of sayings, some of which definitely appear to come from the New Testament, but some of which we're not exactly sure where they came from. Katie, thank you so much for your call. And, you know, it was Jude. That's where the mention of Enoch happens. A short section on uh, 1 Enoch 1.9 is cited in the New Testament epistle of Jude. And that's found in Jude 1. 14 and 15, and so uh, attributed to Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So (laughs) thank you very much, Katie. Great to hear from you. Thank you, Katie. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. And interesting, when you start to talk about these extra canonical books, uh, and you mention the book of Thomas or the book of Enoch or the book of Yasher, Um, Some will say, oh, what about all of those other books that sometimes Catholics have in their Bible? 
Sometimes we call them deuterocanonical books, extra to the canon, uh, but they've found their way into the Catholic Bible. Any just a quick thought uh, from you on those, Jonathan? Is that you'd group them all together? Uh, are they evil uh, or are they something that you could look at, but you just don't consider them as important as the others? Yeah, so great, great thoughts there. So some of these um, books that are outside the, the Bibles that you would typically buy, some of them are historical books. So one and two Maccabees. So I'm not sure whether the Jews would, the Hebrew speakers amongst us would say I pronounce that correctly, but most people call them one and two Maccabees. They're very much historical books and they fit in before the time of Jesus. So those sort of books that the Catholics might have in their Bible, they don't impact. There are some other books that the Catholics have that might have some sort of an impact. But what I'd like to say is the broad brushstrokes that Christians have under this big umbrella of Christendom are still there. After all, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. Catholics and the rest of Christendom all believe that you do to... um, in the Protestant sense, you certainly need Jesus' forgiveness. And the Catholics, that's not that's a no-brainer. If Jesus hasn't forgiven you in one way or another, then also you, you are doomed for hell. And, of course, hell and heaven are things that both um, Catholicism and Protestants can agree on. So although we have some differences that should not be belittled, always like to start with what do we have in common? I hope that helps. Uh, you're very good and diplomatic when it comes to that. So, uh, hey, <laughs> wonderful good. stuff. But I mean it from the heart. Yes. Let's take another call and we'll get through as many as we can. John is in Lota, one of the Bayside suburbs in Brisbane. <laughs> hey, John, welcome. Uh, thank you. Hi, Neil. Can Jonathan tell me why... There is no mention anywhere in the Bible or in the New Testament about Christmas and Easter. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Yep. yep. Yeah. So um, some of the thoughts I have about this, I guess, is that the, the Bible is a book of the New Testament is a book of its times. We're reading about what was important for Jesus to convey to the disciples and what the disciples regarded as a foremost important for everybody else to understand about what Jesus said and did when he said and did it. From those, those core teachings, Christians develop culture. And culture is simply a fancy word for saying what we do around here on a regular basis. And just like in our society, we might have a culture of celebrating birthdays based on your day of birth. Other cultures, believe it or not, actually celebrate birthdays based on your name. Um, Equally, some Christians wanted a culture of Christendom. And this is natural. You might celebrate your wedding anniversary. Somebody else might celebrate the anniversary of their proposal. Christians were always full of the joy and the love of Jesus. They were celebrating that every Sunday or Sabbath day um, in a very special way. But it was understandable that eventually we want to make this part of our calendar, if you like, our culture. When can we all get together and make a bigger to-do 
about Jesus being born. And so you're right, you're spot on. There's no great mention, of course, of Easter celebrations because they weren't celebrating Easter. These books were written very early on. Uh, I believe, and, and most scholars believe, that all of these books in the New Testament were written before 66 AD. There were some big persecutions going on before then. Nero comes readily to mind for most of us. But also, some of the books like the Gospels, they were written very early. I think the Gospel of Matthew was certainly out and about in its full form well and truly by about 40s. Many people would say the 50s. And so I hope that helps you understand why we don't see some cultural aspects of Christianity in the New Testament. John, thanks so much for raising a great question. Appreciate your call. Let's see if we can get through as many of these as we can. Let's hear from Eric in Boulder in Western Australia. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Oh, g'day. What are your thoughts, yeah, I Eric? Have a, I just have a uh, thoughts about the... Um, now, Jesus, he drew most of his stuff from the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, he actually enhanced... Uh, you know, the teachings of Moses. And, uh, of course, that was written in Hebrew. So I believe that you really have to, uh, if you really want to study the word, you really have to look at the Hebrew because uh, I believe the Hebrew is the uh, mother of all language, of uh, of every nation. Well, yeah, you've raised some really interesting thoughts. Um, way I put it to many people is you might remember once upon a time, just based on my assumptions about your age on, on your voice, that you might, like me, be able to remember black and white TV. And, of course, we moved from black and white TV to now full colour. If we were to watch a show that we used to watch in black and white and colour, we would find it very similar, but we might get a little bit of extra depth by being able to see it in colour. When we are, if we were able to read fluently Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, then I think you might get a, f- a few more nuances in your understanding. But it's not like your understanding when you read a good translation is anything less than watching a great black and white version. You're getting all the essentials. In fact, there's so much in there that I still don't obey, even though I understand it. And in the end, when the rubber hits the road, we are trying to love Jesus with all our mind, but of course with everything we do and breathe and feel. Um, a slight correction there. Uh, Jesus was certainly uh, conversant uh, in Aramaic. That was probably his main go-to language and Greek. He certainly knew Hebrew, but in Jesus' part of the world at that time, Hebrew wasn't the mainstream language anymore. It was Aramaic. Uh, They both um, belonged to a Semitic branch of languages, but Jesus in particular was speaking probably a Galilean branch of northwestern Aramaic. Wonderful stuff and uh, so much depth in all of this. Eric, thank you so much for a great uh, point that you raise. Let's see if we can squeeze in a couple more calls. James is in Kyabram in Victoria. Hey, James. James, are you with us? James, I think you might need to call us back. Uh, If we can squeeze you in, I'm not sure we'll get to today. Let's hear from Dennis in Brisbane. Hey, Dennis. Hi, how's it going? Good. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just was curious if you had any commentary on um, the use of fiction in in that particular era of time. Because you know how, like, nowadays we read a lot of stuff for fun and fiction? 
uh, what, to what degree did that develop very late, probably in our, you know, our writing as humans? Fabulous. Around issues to do with, um, you know, these days we have non-fiction and, uh, you know, you have historic books. Um, you know, what sort of fiction was going around, do you think, in those uh, early times? I'm so pleased you asked this question. I, I've, I'm an avid fan of science fiction and uh, many of us would think growing up that Jules Verne was the inventor of science fiction. But a guy called Lucian of a town called Samosata, he was born in 120 AD, he wrote science fiction. He wrote about aliens who had eyeballs, spare eyeballs in their pockets that they would exchange with each other. He talked about his ship being swallowed by a whale-like creature that was 120 kilometres long, and inside the belly there are islands. He was a really exciting sort of a fellow. And yet he also wrote a book called how to Write History. He wrote non-fiction and fiction. And he also wrote some really interesting, if you like, um, mm, uh, books exposing a particular con artist called Peregrinus. And that book that Lucian of Samosata wrote about a con artist called Peregrinus is in my book, which you really should buy, because it's a fascinating look at what Christians were believing from a non-Christian's point of view, who was writing in about 160 AD. Thank you so much for that question. Dennis, thank you so much. And I don't think we're going to be able to get back to James, who dropped out. Uh, thanks so much for trying to get through there, James. So we didn't get you this time. If we're talking about today, the Bible, let's come back to where we all, you know, we can get into the depths and we can talk about all sorts of nuances. And there's been some great calls uh, through this time. In your mind, Jonathan, when we open our scriptures today and we read the words of Jesus, and uh, sometimes they're in red, depending on the Bible you've got, and we're reading the New Testament like a commentary almost on Jesus and the things that he said in the Gospels. We've got some history in Acts. Uh, when we're looking at our Bible, how confident ought we be that we're reading something that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and is powerful for you know that revelation of God himself that can come to us today. How confident are we in the Bible today? I would love to talk about this so much more, but what I can say is, based on the evidence, the facts are on hand, when you read that Jesus said something like, uh, in John chapter 11, verse 25, he who believes in me will not die. You can be certain that is what Jesus actually said. He didn't say it in English, but his words in, in Aramaic or Greek would have been the same. There's no reason to be hesitant that when you're reading anything that Jesus said, you, there's no reason to feel, Am I, can, is it possible that I'm reading what he said? You should feel very confident based on the facts, not on my opinion, that you're reading a really good record of what he said and what he did. I'd strongly encourage listeners to buy the book. It's a great Christmas pe present for Christians and non-Christians of any age. And, of course, uh, you could go off to college and study Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And as some say, you've got to study German as well because some of the greatest theologians have been writing in German. So, I mean, there's a lot of depth in the way that you might study uh, the Bible and theology and ministry, but certainly getting a hold of a book like Jonathan's book called Echoes of Jesus might cover a lot of those bases that you might be thinking 
thinking, wouldn't it be good to get into some of that sort of study? And just to just to reflect on this sort of study, uh, you're obviously gifted uh, to be able to, you know, dissect a lot of things that some of us will say, this is really mundane and difficult, but um, it's not for everyone. But when you've got something and in a clear representation of how to make sense of it, you ought to get a hold of it. Yeah, and I, I do find that this is what we go right back to the beginning of this interview. People of all walks of life have a great curiosity about Jesus. And like you and I, they have the same root questions. Can we really believe that this is something that Jesus said and did? And what basis have we got for believing that? And it's life-changing, of course, because we believe that we're not just reading about a person that has come and gone. We're reading about a person that came to earth in human flesh, who is God the Son, and who is wanting to be reconciled to us and live inside of us and make our lives more the way they should be in harmony with him. Well, to get a hold of the book, you can get it in the Vision Store. It's called Echoes of Jesus. Does the New Testament reflect what he said? Dr. Jonathan Clark is the author of that book, and there is a website too. You can connect directly with Jonathan, echoesofjesus.com. That's echoesofjesus.com. And as you said, Jonathan, it's for skeptics and for everyday Christian believers who have questions about the reliability of the Bible. Jonathan, thanks so much. Uh, Let's plan to do this again in the new year because there's so much more depth that we can cover. And I think listeners will be confident in your ability to be able to tackle any of the tough questions that come. But Jonathan, appreciate you taking some time to share your heart with us and your knowledge on 2020. Thank you very much and thank you for all of you for listening to me and thank you for your wonderful questions. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.